just last minute didn't even describe how late the goals they scored often were. And it just meant that as a fan, and I think actually as an opposition player, even when the other team was winning, you thought, yeah, they're still going to win. United's still going to win. And I, th I think that affected how other people played them, and it affected you as a supporter. Last night, they were losing 2-1 to a team so far below them in terms of history and things like this. It, it's just odd. Um, I don't even know how the game ended. I was off doing something else. But I, I just had no sense of, oh, but they'll probably win. I thought, well, they'll probably lose. It became almost like a, the, the, the contrast is just so startling for me, and that's why I'm dealing with it in public now to really help <laughs> process it. It's like the opposite of supporting Scotland. Well, it was, I, I think this is just part of the preparation for me for now living here. So the difference was you were losing, but you thought you'd win. And now I come to a place where you, even when you're winning, you expect you'll lose. And, and the time, if you're a Man United fan, you just, time is something like, oh, there'll be more time. They'll win. And whereas if, yeah, Scotland, we're not going to talk about the World Cup, obviously, but that kind of thing, you just think, just finish, just finish whilst they're still ahead, please. Oh, no. We're still 12 days from Christmas, and so I imagine uh, that the, 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 the kind of fever pitch of Christmas hasn't necessarily entirely gripped you just yet. You're not at that point where you're thinking, I just need some more time. Would you please just find an extra day somewhere? Would, I have got my, would my watch be wrong? Would my phone be wrong? It's actually a couple more days. We're going to get this all sorted out. But that's not really a sentiment unique to Christmas, is it? Uh, many of us feel this really whatever time of year it is. Uh, if you're studying for exams right now, you are probably feeling that. You're thinking, I would like some more time. And that can make us quite tense. It can make us panicked. Um, but at Christmas, we see something of how God relates to time and how God uses time and works in it. And that can change how we understand time. It can change even how we experience it. And so today, I want to tell you something of the story of, of all time, rather than look specifically at a particular Bible passage, which is what we usually do. Here's the story. It starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, verse 1. Space, matter, time itself, everything we know, the way we experience everything, he spoke it into being. He is uniquely free within time because he made it. All the rest of us are made within time. He made time. And so when he revealed his name to, him, uh, to us, he said, Moses said to him, what's your name? He said, my name is I Am. He always is. And he gave promises to his people that that which we had broken so quickly, he would fix. Those were promises that required patient waiting over generations. But as people waited, they learned more about him. He showed more about him to them. He commanded them to take a day's rest every week because they belonged to him. They sung songs such as Psalms 31. When they realized something, they said, our times are in his hands. Proverbs were written such as, we, we, make, we do what we try, we do all this, but everything is in God's hands, ultimately. They learned in Ecclesiastes 3 that there is a time for everything. And they understood that God had put eternity in their hearts. 
That to be a human being isn't simply to be a, 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 you know, a mass of flesh and cells and stuff living in time as we are. We're not simply matter. God has put something of himself in us and so we live strangely in relation to time in that we live in it, but there's something in us that isn't like it. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And his people yearned for the day of the Lord, as it was called. A time which God spoke of through his prophets. A coming time when he would heal and restore all that we had ruined, all that had been broken. A new beginning would come. And so they waited. And he waited. And civilizations rose and fell until one came into being that put in place a peace which enabled news to travel fast. And literacy and technology combined to make writing popular and portable. And a shared language and culture stretched for thousands of miles around the very land where God had promised to show himself. The perfect conditions for a global movement to be born. And at that precise time, in exactly the place where he said it would happen, a baby was born. The Apostle Paul describes it in Galatians 4 as, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. And so John starts his account of Jesus, that baby, his life echoing Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in that moment, the eternal God who existed before time, who created time, steps into time in a new way. And he experiences time as we do. He grew. He got tired at times as we do. And he waited 30 more years after his arrival. And John's gospel is full of a couple of questions. What is he here to do? And John gives the answer to that a lot. But then there's another question going the whole time. When is this going to happen? And John holds back on that. So early on in the account, uh, Jesus' mother is with Jesus at a wedding. The wedding's run out of wine. You may be familiar with the story. And, And she says to him, hey, they've run out of wine. Nudge, wink, come on, son. And he says to her, my hour has not yet come. So she's saying, come on, I know that you can do things. You do something here. He says, no, my hour's not yet come. Now, he makes loads of wine anyway because he's like that. But the sense in the gospel continues. The time hasn't yet started. His brothers later on say to him, come on, you keep telling us all this stuff about yourself. Why don't you go and show yourself off? And he says, no, no, no. The time, my time, has not yet fully come. And often through the account, you see Jesus' enemies, they're trying to arrest him, they're trying to kill him, and they just can't lay a hand on him. And you think, well, the odds of that are ridiculous because they're the authorities, they've got an army on their side, and there's just this one guy, and he's right in front of them, and they can't arrest him, they can't kill him. Why not? Well, John says, because his hour had not yet come. 
And this sense of something happening, obviously he's here, he's doing amazing things, but the thing hasn't yet quite happened. You feel this just throughout John's Gospel, and then at the end of chapter 12, something changes, and Jesus suddenly says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the next chapter, chapter 13, begins, John says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so what we know is the Easter story begins. And before he allowed himself to be arrested and allowed himself to be arrested is the only way to explain how this happens. They were so bad at it before, they didn't learn it. It's just that he allowed it to happen. He prays this in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And that should melt your mind that a human being could truly say that. Glorify me with the glory I had in your presence before the world existed. He gives up his life just as it was promised. And then he takes it back again and he is alive forevermore. And he has fulfilled all those promises. And the tension that we feel, the, the three days, the waiting, the what's going to happen. I mean, obviously we read it knowing how the story ends. But at the time, think what's going on? And Jesus is in complete control because the whole time he said, this is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. Because I who existed before all things, knew all things, planned for this and I have now achieved it. And all that then remains is for him to return. He has gone to the Father. He's promised to come back. And he fulfilled all the other things so we can take this one to be sure as well. He says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to complete what I have achieved. And I'm going to be with those who have put their trust in me forever in joy. As C.S. Lewis put it in the last battle, talking about the end of that story, he says, and for this, and for us, is this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Paul surveys this for us. In Ephesians 1, he says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then he looks at that time in 30 or 33 AD when Jesus died on the cross and says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
And then in 2 Corinthians 6, he looks at today and says, now is the day of salvation. Because this has all happened, now is the day of salvation, the day of God's favour. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, he looks to this future and says, we will always be with the Lord. And that is the story that God has written and written us into. We are creatures in time. We are well aware that it does not belong to us. Some people like to use the phrase me time, but that really isn't what it is. Time isn't ours, whether we're running for a bus or we're being woken by a child in the middle of the night or we're facing a seemingly endless shift at work or we're seeing a deadline rush towards us or we're sending or receiving emails that have urgent written all over them. We feel helpless often in time. And Christmas can be particularly good at making that happen. It is rushed. There's lots of things we want to do. There's lots of people we want to see. There's lots of food we want to cook or we want to eat. There are lots of presents we want to give and therefore there are lots of delivery arrangements that we have to make. And all this stuff happens and we think, is this going to happen? Is it going to happen? Or of course those things aren't happening for you and they can't happen for you. And so Christmas, instead of feeling bustly and busy and it's that kind of stress just feels long and barren and hard, a hard time. But what we learn from God in his word and and what the Christmas story brings out to us in particular is that God is the Lord of time. He really does have it all under his control. We all want to be that person who has, you know, life's under control, our destiny's under control, time is under control. And that's what we're told we should look to do. We get some productivity apps and all those kind of things, and you'll be in control of time. Christians shouldn't think that way. Christians believe, actually, they trust that someone else will do that for them. That God is in charge of time. And if we think this way, and if we have this story in our thinking, it changes how we relate to time. We are not meant to be reactive to it, But instead, in Paul's words in Ephesians 5, we are to be making the best use of the time. When you see that this is how God has arranged things, and see his story, Paul says, we are those on whom the ends of the ages has come. Christians live in a very strange sense of time, because God has broken in, and we know how it's going to end. And so we can make the best use of time. And I want to share four ways in which we can do this. And they all start with P, kind of. There's peace, there's patience, there's planning, and there's Sabbath, which like Psalms, if you're being biblical, (laughs) can begin with a P. I thought of putting it actually on the slide, and I thought there were just too many people in this room, including myself, who won't be able to cope with that (laughs) for the whole time, but obviously I wanted to tell the joke. Firstly, peace. Just quickly on this, because it's a deep thing. If you think that no one is in charge of everything that's going on, or perhaps even worse, you think you're in charge, you are going to panic. Panic is an appropriate response to no one being in charge or you being in charge. Now, we are responsible for what we do with our lives. But we are not ultimate. We are not sovereign. 
You had no input on God's perfectly timed plan of salvation. You did not choose to be born, and you will not decide when the world as we know it is brought to an end. How we live, what we do, we try our best sometimes. And there are other times we just tap out and say, just couldn't do it, sorry. For good reasons or for bad. God does what is right always. You can trust him. He is bringing this story about to a wonderful end. When you trust him, he gives you peace. Just even hearing the story, for some of you again, will have just freshly been like, oh yeah, it ends like that. I'd forgotten. It ends like that. It doesn't feel like that right now, but yeah, it ends like that. And he's in charge right now. If he was in charge at the beginning, and in salvation, and in the time to come, he's in charge right now. We see this in the life of Jesus. Even when he was angry, even when he was upset, even when he was suffering terribly, there's a sense in which Jesus is still peaceful somehow. Even when he says, my soul is troubled, as we saw that, he says, no, but Lord, I'm trusting you. Father, I'm trusting you. It's because he knew that God was in charge. And he offers this same assurance, this same peace to all of us. It's why the angels sang when they disturbed the shepherds, peace among those with whom God is pleased. This is God's promise to you. That as you see his sovereignty and you understand it, he will give you peace. Also, just to say, it kind of came up in the worship, this sense of here's what things have been like in the past for you. And if only you could have peace. And God is offering you that today. There is a peace from the past that Jesus gives because he deals with your past. The death that he died that I referred to was to deal, was to pay the price for your sin. You've done wrong things, there's a credit against you. God puts that on Jesus instead. He deals with your sin. It is gone. It is the past. It doesn't belong to you anymore. You are free from it. God draws you into a new circle, as Mary said. That is what God does. And if you know that, and you can know that today, there is peace for you. Being at peace means we will make better decisions and we'll make them for better reasons and we'll be able to do all the other things flowing from wholeness, which is what biblical peace is all about, rather than desperation or chaos or panic. And so there's peace, and then secondly, there's patience. Jesus came to earth several thousand years after we made a mess of everything by rebelling against God. I mean, he could have turned up straight away. He could have had Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, the 4, Genesis 4, Jesus arrives. Dies for our sin, deals with all of it. But he didn't. He could have arrived when he did choose to arrive as a fully formed adult like the rest of us. And know the kind of indignities and the embarrassments of you know, infancy and childhood and conception and all those kind of things. But he didn't. And obviously he was, I mean, he was clearly speaking and knowledgeable by the time he's 12. We only have one episode from his life. By the time he's 12, he's being like unanswerably wise. Experts in the law are thinking, what is up with this kid? I mean, he could have started his ministry then, but he didn't. Decades go past. And so, well, why not start earlier? Why not begin back then when you could have done? 
Well, the answer that we have is because God knows what's best. And that's it. The time had fully come, and God knows what's best. We tend to think that making the most of time means doing everything you can right now. Everything. You must get it all done right now. And I don't think that's true, because I don't think that's what God is like. Peter put it like this, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God knows what he's doing with your life. He knows. He has a plan and he is bringing it about. Often it will involve teaching you patience and wisdom and trust so that faith and hope will grow in you. He is often, if not always, doing that. You may have heard of the uh, famous uh, Stanford Marshmallow experiment. It was started in the 60s and then went on, uh, been going, I don't know if ever since, but certainly for a long, long time. And the, these researchers put a challenge to these children. They'd bring them into the room, uh, one child, table, researcher, and the researcher would put a marshmallow on the table and say to the child, I'm going to go out of the room now, and in 15 minutes, I will come back. If the marshmallow is still there, I will give you another marshmallow. But if the marshmallow isn't there and you've eaten it, you won't get another marshmallow. Here's the marshmallow, I'll see you in 15. Out they go. And then they recorded what happened. And I'm sure there were like videos of the kids going crazy. Like, and some of the kids waited, some of them didn't, slash couldn't. And they recorded who did what, and then they tracked uh, the lives of, of all these kids they do this research on over the following decades. And there was a remarkable correlation between those who got the second marshmallow, how much better in life, generally, they did than those who couldn't. God has built patience into the fabric of the universe so that we might learn to trust him and see that he is good at all times. This isn't just one of those things. It doesn't just happen to be that that's really good for developmental. No, this is the nature of who God is, that he has expressed himself through what he has made, that we might see him and know more about him. Now, having said all that, I still want to open all my Christmas presents the first thing um, Christmas Day morning, and that's what I'll be doing, and I'm looking forward to that. But in other areas of life, God has taught me to wait. And I've never been disappointed by him. And I've, even more so, I've never regretted the trust that he has grown in me by making me wait. If you feel like you're waiting right now, if you just feel like this is not happening, this is not happening, why is this not happening? One of the reasons is God is growing something greater in you. Patience and faith and hope. Bible says that your faith is more precious than gold. And so patience is actually a part of making the most of the time. That then leads into the third thing, which is planning. Now, because God is in control of everything and he is working out his purposes in time, we can make plans that have meaning. The universe is not an accident. 
You might think that it is. If so, your plans are completely a waste of time. They're just about, I don't know. Yeah, but we, if you're a Christian, you believe that God is working things out, working things through, bringing them from here to there, and therefore you can make plans in line with that. Equally, history isn't cyclical. It's that time of year again. Yes, we have seasons, but we are going somewhere. There's, so our plans, they have purpose, they have meaning. One way to plan is what's called reverse engineering your life. And basically what you do is you think about where you want to get to, and then you consider where you are, and you think, this is, how do I get, what decisions do I need to make to get from here, where I am, to there, where I want to be? Now, for a Christian, this is always done within the context of Jesus saying, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. But as those who follow God, and as those who are looking to do that, we can think this way. We can think, what is God calling me to do? What has he made me like? How has he uh, put my life? So where do, how do I go? Where, where should I go? And therefore, how do I go from there, here to there? Uh, Bill Hybel's book simplifies on my uh, list of recommended uh, books to ask for for Christmas. It's just very helpful in a lot of ways. And one of the helpful chapters is about using your calendar And he says that most of us use our calendar reactively. It's there for us to put things into as we are told about them. Could you do this? Would you do this? I need you to do this. Okay, okay, okay. It goes in the calendar. And then we look, well, let's see if there's any spare time left. I'll do some other things in that. He suggests it's far better to put in your priorities first and then see what space they leave you with to do everything else. And so you start a term or you start a year, things like that, and you think, where do I want to get to? John Grisham was once a lawyer who hated his job and he wanted to write novels instead. And in 1984, he decided to put a one-word, one-hour slot at the start of every day in his calendar, and it just said, write. And so he began arriving at his office an hour early, and he spent that time writing, getting a page a day done. Took him three years to write his first book. He then wrote another book called The Firm. It was very successful. Since that time, he sold 275 million books. It started because he put in his calendar, I want to do this. He didn't say, let's see if this happens. He said, I'm making it happen. What do you want to achieve in 2016? Some of us are just getting over the fact that 2016 is a year and that we're alive in it. But... Again, it's reactive, like, I can't believe this is happening. No, no, who do you want to invest in? How are you going to grow in your knowledge and love of God? What responsibilities have you been given by God at home and at work and in the church? What will it look like for you to do those in this coming year? Because God is in charge of time and is bringing all things about for a purpose. These are legitimate questions to ask and process and make plans in accordance with. And and they're not the same as New Year's resolutions. Because usually New Year's resolutions are like kind of a wish list. They're like things that I want to have happened by the end of the year. This is is what I'm going to do this year. So planning is key. I do this on a daily um, level as well. Praying is, is a planned part of my life. And that is why it happens. People often say, oh, you must just be like that. I'm not just like that. I've made myself like that. I get up, I have a shower, I get dressed, I eat, and then I'm in my room with God. That's what happens. 
That's, that's what I have planned to happen. I know that if I look at my phone uh, before I pray, my head will be all over the place because I'm not that good at this. So I don't look at my phone. I make that my plan. There's no, I'll just check this, I'll just see that. There's nothing that's going to... All, all my phone does in the morning is wake me up. And then it's away. And then I'm spending time with God because I know that that's how I spend time with him best and so I've planned to make that happen. If the thing that really is putting you off that is this thing, I just find prayer difficult, then ask for Paul Miller's A Praying Life for Christmas, which will also be on the list, which will be in the news email this week, and read it. There's obviously a slight grace that comes when we buy a book, but there's more that comes when we read them. In the new year, we're going to be... uh, we're going to have a prayer room open here for a few days. It's going to be in the library, which is one of the smaller rooms, and we've kind of chosen that back room for that, partly because uh, it's just you only get like one or two people in there at a time, and we're going to make it so that it will help you learn to pray and have spent time with God in there, and then you can do that by yourself at other times. I also just know what I'm like uh, just in general. I know that I read and I write better in the mornings. So in my work days, that's what I try and make mornings for, meetings, planning meetings, pastoral conversations, as much as it's up to me, I do those in the afternoon because I can do those then, but i rubbish at reading and writing in the afternoon. Just Brain just melts, I don't know. Um, so I make a plan to make that happen. Now, I know some of you here, as I'm saying all these things, will be like, well, that is fine for you. Well done, you. <laughs> so here's another thing that's important about planning. It really helps planning if we realise what season of life we are in. And when you're in it, you can have the patience and the peace that we've already talked about, even if there are frustrations in it. I remember once I was at a leaders thing, and uh, Philippa Stroud, now Baroness Stroud, uh, was giving a talk about um, what happened to her prayer life when she became a mother. And the answer is, it was destroyed. It got completely... Uh, it just didn't happen, and she was really stressed about this, really upset and worried, and just thinking, oh, this is awful. And she felt God speak to her and say... This is what it is right now. This is the stage of life that you are in. A pattern of prayer is unrealistic. So don't make that your ambition right now. Instead, she felt God just say, just grab moments with me when you can, and then focus on the kind of care that babies require. She then said a few years later, he said, yeah, that season's gone now. So back we go. But but knowing that is, is so helpful because it takes a pressure off that we often put upon ourselves. We say, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. You're like, yeah, but you're doing this. This is the season of life that you're in. They might last years. They might last just weeks or you know, a few months. If you've spoken to me since September and said, how are you doing? I would have said, yeah, busy. Or variations on that theme. Not many variations. I didn't really have anything else to say about it. I haven't had time to do some of the things that I love doing that are important for me to do, that are key for my job, actually, and for you guys that I do, that I read good books about deep truth, that I think just out of kind of time about the future and things like that. Everything has felt quite reactive, but it hasn't been, actually, because in the summer, when I was quieter, as I knew I would be, I did those things then. And then when the chaos of autumn came even though it was much more chaotic than I was imagining, there was, there, I had stuff I could take from to use in those moments. I was ready for it, in a way. 
And when you understand that, when you can think of yourself in those seasons, it really helps you again not to be reactive. You think, man, I'm just giving out of them. I'm just giving out. Okay, well, that's the season. Then let's plan and make sure that you carve out some time where you're getting given in. I just have no money at the moment. You have quite a bit of time, don't you? So this is a season for using time rather than money or the other way around. It's recognizing where your life is, speaking with God about that, and then recognizing when those moments change as well. But this is a team enterprise. I've obviously talked about this in the sense of here's what you should do, and so you'll be thinking about that for yourself. But we really need to help others with this. So husbands and wives should be doing this for each other. They should be working out who needs what in this present season, talking about it and saying, well, I've got no time right now. I've got slightly more. Okay, so that's it. Or we, none of us have any time, so those things just aren't going to happen. Or this is the time in which those things are going to happen. Friends can be doing this for each other. Small groups can be doing this for each other. We're looking, how can we serve each other? How can we bless each other so that we are able to make the most of the time that God has given us? And the final thing, Sabbath. Stop every week. That's what a Sabbath is. You stop. You totally stop. God is so serious about this that he put it in his list of the top ten things he wants you to do. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's not just that this would be great if you can get around to it. It's in the top ten. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. A full day's rest in a week is an imitation of God and thus a demonstration of him to the world. It shows what he is like. He is not crazy busy. He can stop. It's also an expression of the freedom that Christians have. He says to them, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Of course, they had no rest. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with an outstretched arm. If you're a Christian, you are not desperately trying to please God and everyone else. Christ has pleased him on your behalf, so you can rest. Christ has achieved salvation. You're not trying to do that. You just get along with him. And he says, you can only do that six days out of seven. And I'm telling you that. Jesus showed us that uh, a Sabbath is not a joyless day of no movement, as some have interpreted it. It's a day for doing good. That's, I think that's what Jesus says the Sabbath is most about. It's a day for doing good. It's for friendships. It's for family. It is for not working. And also, this is quite important, when you see in the, in the actual Ten Commandments, it says, you won't work, and none of your family, and none of those who are, who are your, employ- your employees will work either. So not only do you not work, you don't cause others to work. Now, I know that means you can't, like, oh, well, I'm not going to be sick on the Sabbath so that you know, people in seven-day NHS aren't having to work. It's not like that, obviously. But it's a sense in which we just, we stop doing those treadmill things. And we say to God, you're in charge. It's like giving. The principle of giving is that you will do better with less money than you have. You give God some of the money, say, I trust you. The Sabbath is the same thing. I will do more with less. Not because I'm going to work it really hard, but because I believe that God is able to make that happen. So 
Those are just four things that I think can help us make the most of the time that we've got, knowing that he is in charge of all of it. We can be in great peace. We can experience great peace. We dwell on this, we think it through, we believe him. It teaches us patience. We don't have to do everything. We do some things. We can plan. There is a shape to the story uh, that we're in, and we can learn to do that well, and patience and peace comes through that. And then part of that planning is that we stop every week and say, you are in charge. I really hope that this Christmas you're going to have some time, some opportunity to do that. You may need to have conversations with people about this and say, would you please help me to do this? Or, I want to help you to be able to do this. And you can bring them to God as well. He really is in charge of the whole thing. It's great news. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. You're the God of time and eternity. You are the Lord of all. Our days are in your hands. That is great news. Such good news. For those of us who have put our trust in you, I pray peace right now. Peace like those angels declared over the earth. Peace upon those with whom he is pleased. And everything else that I've talked about flow from there. Thank you for showing us this great story. And if you're not a Christian here, I just want to give you a moment to realise that, that, that you, you're not trusting Jesus, you're not following him, and he's offering you now peace and purpose with him. And he's saying to you, I've got grace for you, I will forgive you, I, we will, your past will be dealt with, and he will come and dwell in your life and give you this joy that you've seen being experienced by people uh, this morning. Just whilst we've got our eyes closed, if you're just thinking, I'd love that to be me, I need that, would you just put your hand up uh, so that I can see you and we can maybe then have a conversation with you in a moment. We'll give you a Bible and we'll help you to understand this. So if you are wanting to respond to that right now, just pop your hand up for me. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for this good news. Tidings of great joy. Honour and we glorify your name. Amen.